We're not going to be supporting you any longer. See, I wasn't going to phrase it like that, Lorraine, the way you phrase it. But I have no job. No, you have an internship that you say is going to turn into a job. I don't know when. I'm so close to the life that I want, the life that you want for me, that for you to just end that right now? No more money. That's Lena Dunham, playing Hannah in the first episode of her HBO sitcom, Girls. And if you've ever watched the show, you know that Hannah is an aspiring writer who lives in New York City, frequents hip coffee shops, and has a colorful sex life. At the beginning of the series, Hannah works as an unpaid intern and lives off her parents' money, two years after college. Here she is later in that first episode, talking to her parents. I think that I may be the voice of my generation. She's convinced the life she's living is the perfect encapsulation of her generation. She is the millennial voice. In real life, Tony Tulatimute can relate. After the publication of his first novel, Private Citizens, in 2016, reviewers started calling him the voice of the millennial generation. And Tony's reaction? Gigantic golden dollar signs flying out of my mouth. I mean, I was, I was glad to get it. I also knew it didn't really bear on the substance of the book at all. Um, I would have really recoiled in horror if I thought that I was trying to speak for anybody besides me and a couple of people that I know. For Tony, being labeled the voice of the millennial generation was good for sales of his book. But that was about all it was good for. On the one hand, you have these um, marketing types who uh, say, well, let's invent something called a millennial. Let's give them these really easily defined attributes and, uh, you know, tell them that this is what they're interested in so that we can influence them more easily, right? Um, We can sell certain things to them that we tell them they need to have because they're millennials. This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the way big ideas shape our lives. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we put the generation on trial. What's the value of generations? Who gets to define them? And are they even real? To investigate, we spoke to Neil Howe. He's an author, demographer, and generation consultant. He's also the person who coined the term millennial. We wanted to definitely identify this new generation. Well, given its first year was 1982, we knew that there were going to be the high school class of 2000, right? Their first cohort. And we thought, well, the generation of the new millennium, right? Coming of age with a new millennium. So that's how we settled on millennial. There are a few different ideas about when the millennial generation starts and ends. But how defines it as people currently between the ages of 13 and 35? According to how, millennials have a collective persona. You can put these people into a group. They can be summarized. When you heard the word millennial, I bet you have a pretty good picture in your mind of what that looks like. My nutrition teacher, who's like so cool, met her boyfriend on Match.com, who's like super cute and totally perf, and they're like the most happy together. And, and it's not I just millennials who have these instantly recognizable characteristics. Every generation has a defined set of collective attributes. You can see this play out in pop culture, at least in the last several decades. Take Gen Xers, the generation before millennials. No, no names, no business cards, no you must know so-and-so. What is this? No resumes, let's just meet like human beings, for once. Or the baby boomers. What the hell's wrong with freedom, then? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Or the silent generation. 
I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm you get the idea. In their 1991 book, Generations, Neil Howe and his co-author, William Strauss, go back to the 16th century in their analysis of Anglo-American generations. But the term generation as we're using it here didn't come about until the 1800s, when philosophers were trying to come up with a way to talk about the tensions between the quote-unquote establishment in society and the ascendant youth. Before that, the term was used to talk about families and the progression of bloodlines from father to son and so on. Generations was took us a long time to write. It was really re- retelling all of American history from a generational perspective. So we had to put all of history together in a way that, that historians never do. According to Howe, each generation has a certain archetype that repeats in a cycle. Prophet, nomad, hero, and artist. Which tells us a bit about the values of the collective generation. Attitudes towards work, family, risk, civic engagement, etc. As the generations march forward, it's possible to predict the way society will change. And it's a very different way of looking at the direction of social change, because what you see is that a group of people who are socialized with a certain age location and history and given distinctive attitudes and behaviors, to some extent, take those attitudes and behaviors with them into every subsequent age bracket they enter. You know, people talk about the year 2050 or 2040 like a science fiction movie, like everyone's going to be different. No, it's going to be all of us. We're just going to be older. And no one thinks about that. No one thinks that we can already talk about, we already know something about the collective personality traits of, of these people at a younger age. To hear how talk about our society this way is a bit of a trip because he has it all mapped out. Our present and future, according to how, can all be explained and interpreted through generations. Howe and Strauss wrote another book in 1997, the fourth turning, which goes even farther. They say that every four generations, there's a big shift that happens. Here's how again. If you think of history as being seasonal and you think of four generation long periods sort of comprising a year, uh, which you know is kind of the length of a long human life, about 80 or 90 years, so about a, a 20 or 22 year generation, sort of you know four of those in a row, right? We, we predicted in 1997 that we were entering the fourth turning, which is sort of the winter period, and that this would be characterized by um, extreme urgency in people's perception about sort of fate of our civic institutions um, and a time of, of, of large and rapid creative destruction of public institutions. How believes we are in the middle of a new fourth turning. He thinks it was catalyzed by the global financial crisis in 2008 and the election of Barack Obama. Basically, you know, the, the fourth turnings are the times we tear down and rebuild our outer world institution, you know, of, of politics, economy and empire. This theory has been embraced by none other than White House advisor Steve Bannon, who told The Washington Post recently that with the election of Donald Trump, we are witnessing the birth of a new political order. In 2011, Bannon talked even more explicitly about the fourth turning at a gathering of conservative activists in Florida. And that's why groups like you, if, if you don't hang together, this country falls apart, will become something very different at the other side of this crisis, because this is the fourth great crisis in American history. We had the revolution, we had the Civil War, we had the Great Depression of World War II. This is the great fourth turning in American history. 
Whether or not you believe this theory of generational cycles, there is no question that generations hold a powerful place in our imaginations. Their narratives can be seized by politicians to add credibility to a movement, or claimed by artists who are trying to capture the zeitgeist of their time. Um, I always like writing in the world I actually live in. That's Douglas Copeland in a 2013 interview on George Strombolopoulos Tonight. Copeland is an artist and author of several novels, the most well-known of which is Generation X, Tales for an Accelerated Culture. It came out in 1991 and is about a group of friends coming of age in the 1980s. And what it became was a time capsule. And I'm really glad that that version of Doug saved that part of the world and because it's long gone now. The term Generation X came from Copeland's novel, and many have said that he was the voice of that generation. But since the publication of Generation X, Douglas, much like Tony, thinks the idea of people existing in generations is pretty much bogus. Well, the whole notion that there was ever a Generation X to begin with was always sort of silly. That's Copeland speaking on a Canadian TV series in 2010. In my mind, if you had to put a, a psychographic, that's the word, label on a group of people. It's like, you know, if you like the talking heads, you're probably X and like leave it at that. But it, it was this, as an idea uh, of the way of looking at the world, it just got like pounded on by uh, politicians, uh, advertising, marketing. Uh, there was all these ways to use and abuse it for some sort of short-term gain. Here's Copeland again, speaking with the Financial Times in a 2014 interview. I, I think that People in the 20th century, which is me, mm -hmm. you, and before, we read a lot of books, and these books built into us a sort of expectation that, well, maybe your life is a narrative, maybe it has a theme and an arc, and it leads somewhere. And when you don't have that anymore, you just have the sensation of being sort of a unit among seven billion other units. And it's not a bad thing or a good thing, but your life doesn't feel like a story story anymore. By doing what novelists do best, telling stories about themselves, he ends up defining a generation. The term Generation X was even picked up by demographers Howe and Strauss in their fourth turning book. You could say that the sociologist or the demographer is kind of like the natural enemy of the novelist, right? Tony Tulatimute again. The novel is really well suited to diving very uh, deeply into a, a single person's consciousness, um, one at a time, I'll say. And um, at the best, you're only going to get, you know, I don't know, 100 points of view in a novel, maybe. if, uh, And that would be an unusually capacious novel, right? Um, to try to turn it into something that uh, paints society with a broad brush um, is to really play against its strengths. Tony says there's a danger to the idea that one work of art or one collection of characteristics can speak for an entire generation. The trap here is, is chauvinism, generally, right? Uh, as soon as you put on this mantle of speaking for a whole generation, then uh, it becomes natural to wonder about what's getting left out, right? And what's getting left out is usually the people who de facto have no voice or are marginalized in some way. So maybe what's needed is a little bit of skepticism whenever you hear a marketing pitch calling one thing the voice of a generation. In fact, we might want to discard the whole idea of generations. We live in a very diverse society. Any effort to reduce an entire group to stereotypes is going to be incomplete. And those gaps in our understanding can make it hard to hear and address the problems less visible members of society have. What we need is a politics that is led more by literature than by marketing.
We need narratives that are comfortable recognizing difference, rather than insisting on some mythical, massive cohort of people who think and act the same. Let's write those stories instead. Ministry of Ideas is produced by Nick Anderson, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubandspokeaudio.org. Today I want to tell you about a Hub and Spoke show called Soonish. The show is hosted by a witty science journalist named Wade Rausch, and through narrative and interview, he reveals the simple but profound point that while the future is shaped by technology, technology is shaped by us. In a recent episode called Shadows of August, Wade goes on a road trip to both reflect on the recent solar eclipse and our contemporary political moment. He even gets recruited into a Civil War reenactment in Gettysburg. Check it out at soonishpodcast.org or anywhere podcasts are available.